You are listening to a Pleasure Podcast. For more from our Sex Podcast Collective, visit PleasurePodcasts.com. Hello, friends. Welcome to American Sex, a podcast dedicated to normalizing conversations about pleasure and alternative sexual expression by challenging those puritanical, backward-ass ideals we have right here in the U.S. of A., This is episode 98 of American Sex Podcast, and I'm Sunny Megatron. My awesome co-host is Ken Melvoinberg. You're going to be hearing from him a little bit later in our guest conversation. We're both sexuality educators, pleasure advocates, and kinky perverts, too. This week, we're talking to Amy Jo Goddard about a medical procedure many of you don't actually believe is happening. In the United States, medical students are often trained to do pelvic exams on anesthetized patients without their consent. Yes, absolutely. That means you could go in for elbow surgery and without knowing it, have a number of medical students practice gynecological exams on you while you're asleep. In fact, this is perfectly legal in 43 States. And there's also evidence that this is happening with other types of exams like prostate exams and such too. So, our guest, Amy Jo Goddard, if she sounds familiar, we've spoken with her before about Me Too about a year ago. Amy Jo is a sexual empowerment expert. She's the author of Woman on Fire Nine Elements to Wake Up Your Erotic Energy, Personal Power, and Sexual Intelligence. She's also the co-author of the best-selling classic Lesbian Sex Secrets for Men, plus she gave a TEDx talk called Owning Your Sexual Power. Amy Jo has been teaching and speaking about feminism and sexuality for over two decades. She also leads her annual Firewoman Retreat, which is a sexual empowerment event with powerhouse teachers for women and non-binary folks. I'm one of those powerhouse teachers, but I'll tell you about that in a minute. Anyway, today... We're talking with Amy about the subject of her forthcoming film called At Your Cervix, which examines patient consent and bodily autonomy in gynecology and medical education. It aims to end unethical practices that harm both patients and medical students. So yeah, Amy Jo tells us some hella shocking things. I mean, the rate at which this is happening is truly astounding, as are some of the personal accounts from patients who have been violated. And Amy tells us about some of those as well. And what's truly shocking is the why component of it all. Why is this allowed to happen? And why has it been continually swept under the rug for years? Well, Amy Jo gets into the dark history of gynecology in this conversation, which may shed some light on why this still happens. And even back a 100 years ago, when this was happening in a much more extreme manner, even up until today, she tells us why many medical students feel violated themselves being coerced to watch and participate in violating patients' consent. Amy Jo also tells us not only how we can protect ourselves during medical procedures, but also what we can do to help it end. Now, it goes without saying, there is some pretty heavy content in this episode. And if you have a history of sexual assault, especially in a medical context, I want you to know that. It's fine if you need to sit this one out. No worries. We'll catch you on the next one. Now, before we move on to our guest conversation, I want to give a big shout out to us. 
American Sex Podcast. So last Friday, the 9th, was not only mine and Ken's fifth wedding anniversary, it was also American Sex Podcast's second birthday. So American fuckers, it has been an entire two years. It's been a ride, hasn't it? little trivia, we launched this podcast on our wedding anniversary. We're about to go out to dinner. It was kind of like, we're getting the podcast ready and we knew we were going to launch. We didn't have a launch date. And we're just like, we're going to do it today. So on the way out to dinner, I hit launch or I press whatever button, gave it to the world. And then I kind of went, and then left and we went out and ate crab legs. So that's how American Sex Podcast was born. It has been a great two years. We want to thank all of our guests, all of our sponsors, and most of all, all of you, every single one of you, you have downloaded this podcast over half a million times, and we couldn't be more thankful. We love you, American fuckers. Mwah. So real quick, at the end of our conversation with Amy Joe, we do talk a little bit about her upcoming Firewoman retreat. That's in San Diego, September 29th to October 1st. 2019. And yeah, I'm going to be facilitating there and teaching. And we would love for you to join us. And I'll tell you about Firewoman real quick. Like I said, it's for women and non-binary people. It's a unique three-day event designed to help women break through the things that hold them back from being who they really are as sexual people. Through transformative teachings, play shops, incredible evening events by Firelight and powerful connection with other women who are on this journey of sexual evolution too, you will be forever changed. This epic three-day experiential sexuality retreat hosted by Amy Jo Goddard combines the power of healing and ritual, hands-on skill building, creative play and dress-up, spectacular evening events, and life-changing inner transformations. If you want to learn more about the event or get your tickets to come join us, I want you to go to firewomanretreat.com slash sunny. Now, if you go to that link, they'll know that I sent you. And if you don't use that link, just tell them we sent you anyway. All right. Are you ready, American fuckers? Here's our conversation with Amy Jo Goddard. We've got Amy Jo Goddard on the line back with us for a second time. Hey, Amy Jo. Hey, Sunny. Hey, Ken. Hey, how are you doing? I'm doing good. Love being here. Psyched to be back. Yay. We're happy to have you. Although, you know what? As a medical professional, today's subject to me is horrifying because it's something that I was aware of but never witnessed. And the whole premise of the major focus of today is really scary for me personally. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it is for a lot of people. Um, yeah, I find it interesting. And you what you and I were having a conversation not that long ago, where yeah. every once in a blue moon, I come across an article online that talks about the non consensual pelvic exams that are done on anesthetized patients. And I'll you know, put it up on Facebook. And it oftentimes gets a lot of like, people are like, what? I've never heard of this. Da, da, da. Mm-hmm. And inevitably, I get a big group of people who are like, I just don't believe this. This cannot be legal. I don't think that this is actually happening. Or people who are like, hey, I'm a nurse and I've never seen this happen. So this is a big old lie. So how prevalent is this issue? Well, I guess to clarify what we're talking about, um, you know, I'm making a film called Out Your Cervix. 
And one of the big things that the, the focus of the film really turned from one thing to another as we did our research um, many years ago when we were starting the project and found out that many medical students are learning how to do pelvic exams on patients under anesthesia who've come in for some kind of surgical procedure. So the way that tends to go is that there's a student or maybe two or three students who are on a surgical team and it, it gets kind of seamlessly worked into the process. And so I think that's where in some ways it can be missed and, uh, and seen as something that's sort of part of this patient's care. Um, but when, you know, if you go in for, so, so let's assume it's a gynecological surgery, which it's not always, we actually have several patient stories, uh, where it was something totally different, but if it is a gynecological surgery, obviously your surgeon would do a surge, uh, would do a confirming exam, right. To check the pathology or whatever it is that you're addressing in the surgery prior, prior to whatever procedure they're doing. And so then oftentimes if these students are on the surgical team, um, they will then be told, okay, practice your pelvic exam, you know, or I want you to, you know, be able to feel this pathology, you know, do a bimanual exam on her, um, do a speculum exam on her. And um, in, in, in that case, that's not for the patient care. That's for the student learning. Mm-hmm. And so that's a very, very different um, so yes, there are many naysayers and we experience that every time we have a post that, that really gets out there as well. Um, and I find it interesting that it does tend to be a lot of, in particular women actually in medicine or nursing who, who don't believe that this happens. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the party line is, well, I never saw it in my training, therefore it doesn't happen. Um, we recently went to Utah to interview the senator who just got a law passed in Utah, which is only the seventh law in the United States, by the way. We can talk about that. Um, and he actually had a really great analogy. He was like, you know, that makes no sense. That, that line of, you know, argument makes no sense. He said, you know, I've never seen a murder, you know, and I've never <laughs> seen a rape. Yeah. But I believe that those crimes happen. <laughs> you know, right. there's there's no reason for me to not believe that that happens. So it's it's this very interesting thing in medicine, and that's this defendedness that um, isn't useful. That many people in medicine, and not all of them, you know, there were definitely a lot of providers that have have also posted and said, "Wow, you know, I've never seen this, but I want to know more about it." And that's right. what we need. We need people to at least be curious and be open to hearing. Um, you know, but I can say after 15 years of working on this project, um, hallelujah, it's almost done. Um, I've talked to hundreds and hundreds of people and I can tell you without a doubt, this is happening, how much it's happening. We don't know because there hasn't been recent research confirming new numbers. And so the numbers we have from the primary research that was done that really brought this to the fore in 2003 was that 90% of students were learning this way. Wow. And so my response, yeah, which is a crazy statistic. I mean, crazy statistic. So, you know, if you, if you're going to tell me that this isn't happening or it's gotten better, then show me the numbers. Right. You know, let's, let's speak in medical terms. Show us the evidence that this has changed. 
because wow. I can tell you, I have talked to many people, both patients and students who have said this happened. So it, it, when it comes to the legalities of this, is this technically illegal? Is it legal? Is it a gray area? Like, where does it fall? This is, yeah, this is part of our mission, you know, is to get laws in all 50 states, although I don't think the law is the end all be all. But I think it sends a very, very strong message when we have a law saying, this isn't okay. <laughs> um, we also did a couple of patient interviews recently. It's been very hard to find patients, as you can imagine, right? Because most patients don't know this has happened to them because right. they were anesthetized. Um, we did get a couple of patients who were willing to speak on, on camera recently and told compelling stories. One of those patients helped. She actually tipped it over over the edge in, in Utah because of her testimony um, where there previously had been uh, lawmakers who were like, this doesn't happen. We don't need a law for this. They were like blowing it off and um, didn't really want to hear it when Senator Dan McKay presented the bill. And then they brought in this patient and they heard her story and they were like, oh, okay. And then it, it, it literally passed unanimously. And that law passed inside of six weeks from like soup to nuts, which is crazy. That When does that happen? <laughs> that does wow. not happen. So I think it's clear that like, this is like, Everybody should care about this. You know, it doesn't right. matter what party line you fall on. Um, this other patient that we had interviewed in the state of Arizona, she is actually a nurse. And she had gone in for abdominal surgery, um, which is not the vagina, by the way. It's <laughs> vagina adjacent, but not, not, not a vagina. So she had gone in for surgery with the top surgeon or one of the top surgeons in the country for the things she needed. And she actually ha was having surgery in the facility where she works, uh -huh. just to add some layers to this. And she has not seen this happen before, but she knew enough to say, listen, I don't want any residents or students touching me. I don't want them touching instruments. They can be in the room and watch. She knew that that was a practice that often would happen. She said, they can be in the room and watch. I do not want them touching my body or, or doing any aspect of the surgery. She made that very clear, both on her form and verbally to her surgeon uh -huh. after her surgery um one of the residents one of the young residents came into the recovery room where she was and, and said to her which is this is such a bizarre thing to say to someone anyway but she said wow it was so cool that we got to see you that you had started your period <gasps> and she was like excuse me like why do you know that i've started my period and she was like well when, you know, when we inserted the speculum, we saw, you know, that you were starting your period and it was just, it was such a cool thing to get to see, which it is a cool thing to see. I've seen that. I get that. But this is so wildly inappropriate. You know, she's coming out of anesthesia. This resident basically discloses to her that she's done a speculum exam on her during her abdominal surgery. Uh, and she said to her, I, this was an abdominal surgery. Why were you inserting a speculum? And the resident was like, uh, never mind, gotta go. So wow. she spoke to her surgeon about it later, and her surgeon pretty much blew it off and was just like, what's the big deal? Which is often, often the response, unfortunately, with a lot of medical providers that don't see why that would matter <laughs> to a patient, uh, strangely. Um, and you know, she went through a lot with the surgeon and, you know, she also had been, she had a history of sexual assault 
And so this ended up really kicking up a lot of PTSD for her. She had had a pretty um, major experience with, that involved a court case and whole thing with, with a sexual assault. This kicked everything up for her, all the PTSD symptoms, the not sleeping, the, the nightmares, all the things. And, um, you know, and she talked to her surgeon several times about it. And she was just like, how could you do that? Like I was a, I, you know, I have a history of sexual assault. How could you do that? And her surgeon said, well, I didn't know you, you had a history of sexual assault. You should have told us. <laughs> you know, it's like, because that would make all the difference, right? We can do to her abdominal surgery. Right. Wow. So, you know, A, shouldn't matter. Um, B, totally her right to decide what she wants to disclose and what she doesn't want to disclose. That's, you know, and C, any doctor should simply assume that a high percentage of their patients have experienced some kind of sexual violation. That's just fact. Right. So, um, so it was just sort of really, um, really a crappy response on so many levels. And, um, she ended up going to a lawyer. She was really upset. Um, and she ended up actually seeing three different lawyers and all three lawyers said to her, you don't have a case because this isn't illegal. What they did isn't illegal, which I would beg to differ. Like she made it very clear. I don't want these people involved. And then they're in her vagina. I don't know. In any other context, we would call that rape or assault. So, um, so I would beg to differ on that. However, they said, we don't have a law in the state of Arizona. We don't really have anything to stand on. And it's going to come down to your word against the surgeons. And of course, she knew how to access her records. She got her records and all of that. And there was nothing in her records about this, um, oh. which is typical. So, so that's an example. <laughs> I have many. Um, in all but, of your research, did you ever come across a case where either the healthcare provider disclosed to the patient that this happened or did it, or, or did the provider own up to it in yes. any case at all? Yeah. 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 I mean, this, this provider did, I mean, she, she did own up to it, but then got defended about it and like, what's your problem and what's the big deal here. Um, and then actually dropped her as a, as a patient for her follow-up. She had some pretty extensive follow-up she needed around this abdominal surgery and she, the, the surgeon then dropped her, which is just total insult to injury. <clears throat> so not that she necessarily wanted to keep working with her, but um, yes, we have another patient we interviewed and um, she found out because the, she actually heard about the issue through the, the film because we've been out there for many years and she had heard about the film and this issue and she had had a knee surgery. And when she woke up, there was a piece of gauze with iodine on it on her vulva. And she was oh. like, huh, that's weird. <laughs> Once again, not even adjacent. <laughs> so, and the um, knee bones connected to the vagina. Yeah. Bone. No. Yeah. Gosh, runaway, runaway gauze. So, yeah it didn't dawn on her until a few years later when she had heard about the film and this issue. So she called the facility and, and asked them, you know, is this what happened? And they said, yes, they, they confirmed it. Oof. So, you know, I think maybe many providers would, would not necessarily do that today. That was a few years back. Um, but you know, just because it's been talked about enough that I think they're, they're catching wind that, Oh, maybe people don't like this. <laughs> you know, maybe yeah. not everyone's on board. Um, but yeah, you know, and, and then I've had plenty of students who have, who have said they did it. They did it. Um, and, and then there's a lot of, I think, uh, 
psychological confusion for the student that does something violating to a patient to realize they've done that. And Do the students always know, you know, is it, could they assume like if, if I were in that position and I were a medical student and they brought me in and they're like, okay, we're going to, you know, practice doing pelvic exams on this. Pa- uh, and maybe it's my naivety. I would assume that that patient signed a release and it, it, it was all cool for us to do that. Like in my wildest dreams, probably because I believe the world is a good place and people are good. And I shouldn't always believe that I would think like, oh, this is all taken care of. I think a lot of students do. And then a lot of students, you know, and and certainly all the students who have stepped forward. I mean, really, the major changes have happened because of students. Right. Um, And so the ones who have stepped forward could see that there were definite problems in the process. Wow. Um, Everything from, okay, here's how we're going to deal with this patient. You're going to go in and introduce yourself and you're going to be kind of vague about what your role is. Oh, Um, like literally students are instructed, you know, and there was a debate and even Ari Silver Eisenstadt, who did the the 2003 research that showed 90% of students were learning this way. He also did some research on looking at how students present themselves and found that when students are calling themselves a student doctor, that patients hear the word doctor. Mm -hmm. And when they hear medical student, they hear that they're a student. Oh. And so, so even just the vernacular, you know, there were some shifts where a lot of people were like, okay, you're going to call yourself student doctors. And so then that was pushed back on, you know, because that's actually misleading. Wow. They are not doctors yet. They are not licensed. And um, so when we're, when you're saying that 90% of students have learned this way, did they learn this way once? Is this a repeated thing? Like how often? Like, what is the volume that we're talking about? The volume is so medical students in their third year do their rotations, right? What are called rotations. And so they rotate through a number of specialties. And the idea is that they then get to like, choose what their specialty is going to be. Oh, I really like gynecology. I think I'm going to go into gynecology or I really like internal medicine. I'm going to do that. So they usually spend like two, three, four weeks on a rota- on any given rotation. I think it's usually at least three weeks, maybe four. Um, so when we interviewed Sean Barnes, who was the medical student, now doctor, who got a law passed in the state of Hawaii because of what happened with him, he really broke down the numbers. You know, we had a post about this really kind of go viral on Facebook because I think when you when you break down numbers, people are like, Oh, (laughs) you know, wow. Like it puts it in perspective in a different way. And so he talked about that during his OBGYN rotation, he was six days a week on, you know, in OBGYN surgeries, he would be on a surgical team each day. There would be uh, four to six surgeries per day. And he was doing this practice on every patient. Oh my God. As were his colleagues. And I said, well, how many people were in your medical class. He said, well, there were 60 of us. So that's a lot of patients, right? So, you know, we're talking up to, you know, if it was like kind of max, like six days a week, six people a day for, you know, four weeks, we're talking, you know, upwards of 140 patients for one student, for one student. And so you multiply that, you know, you're talking over 8,000 exams that were non-consensual in one medical class. That's just one wow. medical class. 
So that doesn't mean that's how it's happening everywhere, but that was his experience and his experience was not that long ago. And people want to talk about it like this is this thing of the past. This is this archaic thing that, you know, happened at the turn of the century or something. Um, No, this is very recent, actually. And and I'm assuming they don't do this in other disciplines like proctology and urology. That actually, I wouldn't say that's necessarily true. There is some evidence that it also happens with prostate exams on male patients. Um, We aren't covering that in the film because it's just beyond the scope of, of the film. But yeah, I've definitely heard and I wouldn't be surprised if they do it. Although I do think when we look at just the sheer sheer numbers well just the, the just like the idea of um how men get to have access to vaginas in our culture on so many levels um my guess is that this is you know far more reaching but i don't know wow. i can't say that for sure wow that it's just like, I know about this. And I've known about this for a long time. My mother actually, I don't know how she knew this was happening. But back in the 80s, when I was a kid, we went to a, a hospital clinic that was a teaching hospital that like solely treated people who were on Medicaid, mm-hmm. and you know, the poor, the disenfranchised. And she would always say like, if you know, her and her friends would talk, if you're ever going in for a procedure, and they put you out, you better watch it because they're doing all sorts of stuff. And mm-hmm. and it wasn't even like gasp. It was like, this is what happened. So, you know, know that going in. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and then I, I know a little, I know you know a lot more about the origins of gynecology and gynecological, you know, teachings and experiments. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I mean, one of the... One of the theses of the film at your cervix that we posit is that we really need to look at the origins of gynecology to understand how it's being practiced today. And when you, you know, and, and more and more people are hearing more about this, but I think a lot of people are very in the dark about it. Um, there was a doctor named Marion Sims who is known as the father of gynecology. He made that name for himself by practicing in the South. And, um, he basically wanted to figure out, he wanted to study vaginal fistula. He wanted to figure out, uh, how to, how to help women who had vaginal fistulas, which is a great thing to want to address. (laughs) Um, it's a pretty distressing, um, condition when there are perforations in, in the vagina, the uterus, uh, bladder, um, not necessarily uterus, but bladder and vagina where urine is coming in through the vagina. It can cause infections. It can cause a really horrible smell. It's, it's a, it's a problematic thing that can happen and often is a result of childbirth. Uh So he wanted to figure, figure out how to, uh, how to treat that. But how he did that was that he had basically his own, uh, slave plantation. It was a medical, <laughs> it was a medical experimentation situation where he would house enslaved women, um, black women in uh, a shack in the back in his backyard. And a lot of times he would have, you know, some kind of epiphany in the middle of the night or some kind of idea. Oh my God, what if I tried this? And he would literally go and wake one of them out of their sleep and 
experiment. And he would do this without anesthesia. He would have the other women hold the women down in order to, you know, he was cutting into their wombs. He was cutting into their genitals. Um, you know, if you can imagine that without anesthesia, <laughs> uh, wow. you know, it was, it, it was, it was hugely violent, uh, what he did to these women. And he would have these young doctors or doctors in training. I mean, training didn't really, tra- training was not a lot back then. I mean, you could, you know, if you were a white guy, you could just, you know, decide you were going to be a doctor. It didn't really require a lot. So he would bring in these young guys that were um, in their training or, or wanted to uh, be under his tutelage and learn from him. And it became this medical theater where he was performing these things in front of these young doctors and they would also hold the women down. And, you know, even, and we know all of this from his own account. This isn't, you know, and when people question this history, I'm just like, you should do your research. Um, He wrote his own (laughs) autobiography and he talked very explicitly in his autobiography about this. Um, The, the young men were there to hold the women down and they, they got to a point where they couldn't keep coming. It was too uh, traumatic for them. Wow. So that's how gynecology started. And this is the man that has been lauded as, you know, the father of gynecology. There was a huge statue of him right across from the, um, uh, what is it, the New York Medical, I forget the exact name of the organization. It's a major medical organization in New York, right across from Central Park. There was a huge statue of him. Uh, The community... Communities around it, and, you know, people of color primarily were protesting the, the presence of that statue. I mean, it was on an upper Central Park, um, wow. you know, right there in Harlem. And so it was it was housed in these <laughs> communities of color when this man had completely violated black women. Mm. And um, it finally was was removed this year. Um, this was a big deal. So, but it was moved to Greenwood Cemetery in Brooklyn, where he, uh, where he is buried, um, and many people are still protesting its presence there. Wow. So, you know, so we have a long history of of violating consent of patients and violating women, and particularly poor women and um, women of color. Right. So, um, you know, I think I think we very much have to look at that history to understand why this hasn't been questioned, why something like this still exists. Um, And, you know, and it often really isn't questioned, you know, and I think the students are just indoctrinated into that system. And so, you know, uh, if, if consent were being gotten, I think that students would be involved in that process. They would know something about that process. So I think that's one thing we have to really question. Um, There's another student that we interviewed who, you know, she was on the very first day of her OBGYN rotation and she was in an ER to go back to your earlier question. Uh Um, she was in an ER. Someone had been rushed into the ER and they started to do whatever they were doing on this patient. And the doctor or the, or the attending, uh, turned to the student and said, okay, practice your exam. And she was just like, what? huh? Okay. You know, and gloved up and did it. And she felt very, um, conflicted about that. There's no way someone that was rushed into ER gave consent to that. There's no way. Right. And if, and if you want to claim that they gave consent, if they're under duress 
in an ER, you can't give consent under that. Exactly. In that situation. Here on American Sex Podcast, we talk a lot about using body-safe sexual health products. You know to avoid things like phthalates and parabens, but how much attention do you pay to other types of things you use in and on your body, like your deodorant? Many popular brands contain very questionable ingredients. I know, you like the concept of using a natural deodorant, but you've tried a few and they were kind of crappy. You smelled, you broke out in a rash, and they left that dreaded powdery white stain all over the armpits of your shirts. I get it. I've been there. I thought natural deodorant was a total bust too. That was until I found Native. I've been using Native for a while now, and it has exceeded all of my expectations. There is a reason they've been talked up on the Today Show and Good Morning America and have over 8,000 five-star reviews. Well, first of all, Native smells great. And after 16 hours of me running around in the heat, going to the gym, being a sweaty, anxious ball of anxiety, uh, I don't smell like B.O. It works. And I get no white powdery stain on any of my shirts. And best of all, Native is safe for my body. It's formulated without aluminum, parabens, and talc, and contains ingredients found in nature like coconut oil, tapioca starch, and shea butter. Native is my new go-to deodorant, and I want you to try it too. For 20% off your first purchase, visit nativedeodorant.com and use the code SUNNY, that's S-U-N-N-Y, during checkout. And there is no risk to try Native whatsoever. Native offers free returns and exchanges in the U.S. Again, head on over to nativedeodorant.com and use the code SUNNY for 20% off your first order. Now, I had also read something about medical students being, I don't even encourage, it's probably a, a too light of a word, forced to do exams on each other. Is this true? That doesn't happen so much with um, medical students. Um, you know, I don't think students are forced to do that, but I think I think that what you do have to look at is the the power dynamics at work, right? Mm-hmm. So I think... I think coercion is there just by nature of the power dynamic. If, if that is an expectation that is set forth. Um, we were going to include this in the film. We, for years, were trying to work this whole storyline into the film. It'll end up probably being its own separate piece. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, when the women's health movement happened in the seventies and, you know, women were getting together and doing what were called self-help groups and also consciousness raising groups. One of the things they were doing in the self-help groups was sharing information about the body, information about, you know, health issues and sexuality and all of that. And they were starting to look at their own cervixes. They were starting to use specula, do their own exams on their bodies as a means of really taking the power back Mm -hmm. because that power really had just been in the hands of doctors and primarily male doctors So, um, uh, out of that movement, a lot of, a lot of those women ended up going into midwifery and, you know, and, and nursing and then, you know, working in universities, working in programs and wanting to bring that practice into programs. And, you know, I think there's been a disconnect because for them, this was a radical act. This was something that 
you know, had been really powerful for them to do that in the company of other women, to do exams on each other, possibly. And so they wanted to be able to carry on that legacy, but not seeing that, you know, once you're a part of the institution, that's a very different dynamic. It's not the same thing. You can't bring something that you've been doing in living rooms and that women have been doing totally on their own volition and accord that was an empowering thing and bring it into an institution and then make it part of a grading system. Um, And when you have power over your students to not see that that could feel coercive or um, that it would be hard for some students to say no. So um, we, we ended up taking this piece out of the film because it just felt like it was confusing to people. Um, It's just a lot of issues, but yeah, that's, this is another way that students have learned and, you know, it's one thing to say, Hey, if you guys want to practice, here's some resources, totally encourage you to do that. But it's another thing to have faculty watching you practice on each other. And even in some cases, grading you on oh. your exam, because wow. then, then your partner who's allowing you to do the exam on her, isn't going to feel like she can tell you if something hurts or to make adjustments because she wants you to get a good grade, right? So there's just all kinds of dynamics that happen there. And not even to mention the privacy issues of like, maybe I have an STI that I don't want my colleagues or my professors knowing about or, or a piercing or, you know, whatever, just, you know, there's many problems with this as well. Um, And, uh, you know, I think, again, a lot of times people on the, on the medical side, even though they were more well-meaning, didn't necessarily see that. Yeah, yeah. So tell me about the alternatives of using a gynecological teaching associate and your involvement with that as well. Yeah, I mean, this is why we started the film. I was a gynecological teaching associate in New York at every major medical school in New York for 10 years. So I would estimate what what we did as as teaching associates is we were um, some schools considered us part of faculty. Some just saw us as these models that come in. We were not models. We were teachers um, and very well-trained teachers. So we were trained to use our own bodies to teach students how to do effective pelvic exams and breast exams. And so we would usually teach uh, two teachers would team teach with three to four students And so we would model an ideal exam, including all of the language, how you talk to a patient, how you touch them, how you ask permission, how you get consent, the kind of language that's appropriate and isn't. So, you know, so it wasn't just the technical exam. It was all of that other stuff, too, which obviously in an anesthetized situation, you're not ever going to get. And and then the students would have an opportunity to work with one of us um, on our own bodies and we would become simultaneous patient and instructor. So it's very radical work. It's very powerful work. Um, I did it for a long time because I believe in it so much. I've probably had over a thousand exams for the benefit mm-hmm. of student learning. Um, wow. And I was comfortable teaching using my own body and doing that. And every, every GTA has to be, you know, it, it's not, it's not something that anybody can do. Um, Uh, It requires, you know, a lot of comfort with our own bodies, with disclosing things about our bodies, because if there is something, you have to actually tell them what they're seeing. You can't ignore it and pretend it's not there. You know, so there's a high level of um, disclosure. Um, You know, it's a very intimate kind of teaching. And it's, it's also, you know, I mean, over and over and over, we heard from the students that it was just the most amazing experience for them. 
So is the GTA program like some, some, you know, great radical progressive training program that's only happening in this one little spot in New York? Or is that something that happens everywhere? Or um, it's unclear what the prevalence of GTA programs are today. Mm-hmm. Um, they started in the 70s, we interviewed all the kind of major founders of the GTA programs, and they're, they're all featured in the film. Um, you know, we started out making the film just about the GTA work. And then as the anesthesia issue rolled out, it was like, okay, we have to really talk about this. And then then people will understand more why the GTA work is so important. Um, but yeah, there, there, there are programs all over and not just in this country. Um, the, the quality of them and the approach can vary. And so that also is of concern to us. Um, um, I would say that the, the model that we have in New York is an ideal model. Mm-hmm. Um, and, it, and part of what makes it ideal is that the GTAs are the authority in the room. And this was a big debate early on. And some of the early advocates, uh, Lila Wallace at uh, Cornell Medical uh, College and that Dr. Kretschmar out of uh, University of Iowa, who, who really um, developed the work initially, um, we're very, very adamant about that the GTAs have to be the authority in the room. You can't have a doctor in the room that the student is then like doing this exam on this woman on the table, but then turning to the doctor to ask questions. It's like, it's yeah. her body. So the idea is you ask her the questions because every person that ever comes into your office is the biggest authority on their own body. And so that's the idea that we wanted really to impress on students is that you always look to the patient for information. You don't, you know, and oftentimes, you know, it's like, you know, and I'm sure many of us have had that experience where, you know, doctors and their colleagues might be in the room talking about us as if we're not even there Mm -hmm. and not even including us in the conversation. And so, so it really turns that on its head. Um, And that piece is very, very important. And so there are many cases where, uh, you know, the, the, uh, you know, a resident or the attending or the medical educator is in the room and that shifts the power dynamic when you do that. Um, so there are a number of things that are important in terms of what we would say, uh, would make the highest quality GTA program. So Mm -hmm. it varies. There's no governing body over it. Um, but we hope to, you know, one of our goals is to get more GTA programs in place and to do more training of new GTAs um, and consult with um, institutions so that the quality of the programs is what what we believe it should be. So, you know, we live in the U.S. We're talking about the U.S. This is American Sex Podcast. So obviously that, you know, this is happening a lot here. Mm-hmm. But what kind of information do you have on other parts of the world? Is this more prevalent in our country as opposed to others? Or is this happening in other places, too? It's definitely happening in other places. Um, to what degree and how prevalent, I can't say. Right. Um, but I can say, you know, we've been contacted by people in places like the Netherlands um, UK, Australia, you know, we've been contacted by people in other parts of the world, um, about various things about these issues through over the years. Um, and definitely with some definite case studies of of things that have happened. Um, so yeah, it's not solely the U S um, Canada made it illegal in the entire country a few years back. So Canada has taken a much stronger stance uh, than the U.S. has. We don't have a federal law. Um, we only have laws in seven states right now. 
So, wow. you know, our goal is to see laws in every single state. Um, and then also to see, you know, some programs develop around how to actually enforce those laws, because that's, that's where, you know, I mean, every major organization, the AMA, um, you know, uh, ACOG, the American College of uh, Obstetrics and Gynecologists, um, uh, and gynecology, excuse me, um, the AAMC, the American Association of Medical College, I mean, all of them have made very strong statements saying this isn't okay. But if there's no oversight, then facilities are just doing what they're doing. Um, And I think a lot of times even the facility doesn't know, you know, because it's certain doctors in the facility are like, this is how they learned and this is how they're going to teach their students. And they're just continuing this uh, problematic (laughs) practice. And a lot of times I think the facility is not even aware. And so I think the facilities have to become more aware of this practice and of ways to uh, monitor it in their own facilities. Yeah. So as you know, someone with a vagina or all of our listeners listening who have a or even people who have prostates, you know, people mm-hmm. who have orifices, and they <laughs> may be under anesthesia getting shoulder <laughs> surgery or whatever. How do they protect themselves? Yeah, it's it's a good question. You know, we definitely, um, you know, want want the film to be an advocacy tool to help people with that. Um, you know, number one, <laughs> um, definitely write on your consent forms, you know, and read them, read them. Don't just sign them blindly. Oh, but it's so hard. I There's know. so many words. I know. Amy jo. And you're getting surgery. And like, if you need to take That's them home, true. like ask to take them home, like get them ahead of time so that you have time to look at them. Generally, what is on them? Is there some kind of fine print that says something to the effect of, you know, doctors, nurses, physicians, assistants, blah, 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 comma, 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 um, maybe, you know, and other agents of the hospital may be involved in your care. It will generally say something kind of vague like that. Um, but what I would posit is that a student is not an agent of a hospital because they are not licensed. Uh-huh. And, you know, and I think a lot of times also the thought is like, oh, you know, no one's going to say yes if we ask. And, and that's also just not true. Um, we right. know from research that many patients will say yes yes, willing to help a a student, but I want to be awake for that. Or I want to meet the student or, you know, whatever. Um, I want the student to be a female, whatever, you know, like patients get to say what they're willing to do and what they're not willing to do. And so you get to have that negotiation. Um, It's not just some, you know, like, I'm just going to sign blanketly that like anybody can do anything. I mean, the, the, the most vulnerable situation anyone can be in is to be under anesthesia right? You're, yeah. you're entrusting people with your body and your well-being. And that's a huge responsibility for medical providers. And um, it's a huge trust that, that, we, that we give. So, you know, I think having the conversation with your surgeon, you know, I've had gynecological surgery. I've, I had a very clear conversation with my surgeon about it. Um, I also wrote it on my consent form. I mean, again, you know, we have this story of this woman in, in uh, Arizona who did that, and it still didn't matter. But she also didn't know to explicitly say, I do not give permission for educational public exams, <laughs> you know. Yeah. So I would write that explicitly. Or if you are willing to, then to say, I give permission to that one student can do it, and here are the conditions. I mean, you, you get to state the conditions of that. Uh-huh. 
So At Your Cervix is a film that has been being birthed for many, 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 many moons. And it is finally almost ready to be seen by the world. So what can we look forward to in terms of like, when will we be seeing that film? How far do we have to go? How can we help you? All that stuff. Oh, thank you for asking. Yeah, I mean, really, the biggest barrier has been funding. You know, I guess this wasn't sexy enough. People didn't want to fund it. You know, we wasted a lot of years trying to get grants for it. We finally got one grant from the Australia Fund for Lesbian Justice. Um, it was a small grant, not enough to make a film, but, you know, it, it has almost entirely been community funded. Mm-hmm. Um, so, yes. So donors are welcome. Any donation is welcome. You can go to at your cervix dot com um, and get on our mailing list. That's really the best thing to do. And then we'll keep you posted about what's happening. Um, but, yeah, if you can make a donation, we would so appreciate it. Five dollars, one hundred dollars. whatever you can do. Um, We are doing the finishing now. We expect it um, before the end of the year, hopefully in the fall. Um, And yeah, you know, our intention is, you know, we're also raising money to do a very strong advocacy and educational campaign because this, this isn't just a film. It's a film that we want to be an advocacy tool for legislators to get more laws passed um, and certainly to educate patients and also to help students to advocate more for themselves because students are basically in a situation where they don't get to consent. They're, they're, they're being expected to do things that may, may take them, you know, off of their own moral compass. And, you know, and, and that is also problematic. And so we really want to support students. I think students are put in a horrible position with this issue. So, um, so there's multi prongs of what we're doing and really it will be a community mobilization because these, all the statements have been made by all the governing bodies, right? So if the, if the, if the facilities wanted to change it, if the medical institutions wanted to change it, they would have done it. Mm-hmm. So at this point, it really is about pressure from the outside to say, we're watching, we know this is happening Um, and it's not okay. And the more that we're speaking about that and educating about that and, and people are hearing real stories, um, the more opportunity there is to really change this thing. Um, I really believe the film can do that. So I would would love to have you all on our journey. And, you know, as we are doing screenings, you know, um, once we're ready, we we definitely are willing to come and do screenings and talkbacks and things like that. And, and also speak to medical providers um, who want to learn more and want to be better advocates and um, learn the process of, of consent that we know can work, (laughs) that just needs to be implemented. It's not hard. It's not hard. So uh-huh. and I'm hoping that our better. friends at different medical institutions like UCLA, UNLV, University of Michigan, that are all medical providers that have had me and Sonny speak there before, please listen to this episode and respond accordingly. This is a really, really important issue. Yeah. Uh-huh. Thank you. Definitely. Yeah. So Amy Joe, yeah. This is a an amazing amazingly important issue and one that like I said, you know, when when I post about it, people just don't believe. So you have opened a lot of eyes on that front. However, 
you are not just the cervix lady. I'm not. It's true. <laughs> you do a lot of other stuff. This is, you know, um, so you're a sexual empowerment coach, you know, sexuality educator, you know, just a general awesome human being. And you were on our show about a year ago. And I, th- I want to say we talked about like, you know, being a woman and dealing with all of the bullshit of me too. It was kind of have a heavy mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah. But during that conversation, you were like, oh, yeah, and by the way, <laughs> uh, I have this awesome retreat that I do every year. And I think I said like 8,000 times, I was like, what? That sounds really cool. I want to go. <laughs> and so I guess me saying that sounds really cool. I want to go 8,000 times worked because I'm going this year. I know. It's uh- <laughs> like, Sunny, come. Yay. Come, so come tell teach and spread the good word. Oh, I'm so excited. I am so excited. <laughs> so for everyone who's like, what the fuck are you talking about? Uh, tell them about what Fire Woman is. So I do Fire Woman Retreat. You know, I have a book called Woman on Fire, Nine Elements to Wake Up Your Erotic Energy, Personal Power, and Sexual Intelligence. Um, and that book is really based on the sexual empowerment work that I've been doing for many years with women. Um, I've been teaching sexuality for well over 20 years now. So, so yeah, the, the, the GTA teaching was secondary. You know, I was already on my path as a sexual That was your educator. side hustle, your pelvic it side was, hustle. It was a side hustle. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of sex educators, especially early in their career have lots of side hustles. So that oh, was a side yeah. hustle. Um, but an important one and one that I super cared about. Um, but yeah, I mean, really my, my passion has always been to do empowerment work with women and, and girls specifically, and also with queer folks. So, um, so that's the focus of my work. And um, that book is based on the work. And then that evolved into I want to do this big retreat every year. And so this is our third year. Um, this retreat came out of my larger women's sexual empowerment program. Um, I do a lot of experiential work and a lot of like sacred theater and we're doing an erotic carnival that I know you're going to teach some juicy stuff at and we're going to do a thing on the sexual archetypes and we bring in like women to play all of these archetypes that, you know, so then it's like this like uh, experiential activity where you're not kind of talking about a thing, but you're like experiencing it through real people, um, which is super powerful. So, so yeah, we do it at this place called the fire garden, which is this gorgeous space in North County, San Diego, beautiful, beautiful place owned by beautiful people. Um, fire sculptures all over the land that are all lit up at night. It's beautiful. In the day we do a lot of rich teaching and healing work. And you're going to be doing some of that teaching this year, which I'm super mm-hmm. excited about. And yeah, I think women from a lot of different walks of life come uh, who are really ready to have more, you know, that yeah. really want to know what it is to be fully human in, in their human bodies and to be fully sexual and to um, really embrace their pleasure and their desire and to know what they desire. And then how do they get those desires met and to get to do it in a container where they can explore things without the pressure of a partner there who needs something from them or um, whose needs that they need to meet um, or want to meet, I should say. Um, uh, there's just something very, very, very powerful about that. And um, so I've been, I've been teaching sexual empowerment work in these intensive weekends and programs for 10 years now. And uh I'm good at it. I love doing it. And I love bringing in amazing collaborators. And so this year, Sunny is one of our collaborators. And she's, I can't wait. 
Have so much I am so freaking excited. <laughs> I am so freaking excited. And uh, those listening along, American fuckers, if you're like, well, that sounds kind of cool, uh, visit the show notes at americansexpodcast.com because I'm going to have all of the pertinent information if you want to find out more about it. Um, but for those who are ready to just like, I want to go, I want to I find out more, where can they find out more or sign up for, I don't know, newsletters or whatever, whatever you think is the best thing for them to do. Which I did. Yeah, I mean, if you want info on Fire Women Retreat, just go to firewomenretreat.com. And definitely if you sign up for the retreat, make sure that that you tell us that American sex sent you because we want to know that. Um, and yeah, I mean, all, my main my main hub um, with lots of articles, videos, resources, all kinds of downloads and different things is amyjoebatter.com. So you can just find all the things there. Um, feel free to sign up and and be a part of my community. Um, I've been doing it for a long time. And um, yeah, I, you know, I send out a love letter every Friday. Um, with some I get your love letters oh do you read my I love get letters yeah. <laughs> you're like well I get them that doesn't mean I read them <laughs> <laughs> now everybody needs to sign up for your love letters I like your love letters that's actually a great name yeah thank you. a Friday love letter yay yeah. well thank you for you know you are just such one a wealth of knowledge and also a wealth of I don't know, you know, an agent for change and and bettering things in the world because, you know, th- this issue with the exa- like seriously, I I'm still amazed a that it's happening. Yeah. And b that when I hear other people out in the world, you know, I've witnessed them finding out about it, they're just like, "No. Mm-hmm. This isn't that 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 can't be happening." you're telling stories and it's like no there's they're true stories yeah. i wish that were true but it's yeah. not yeah yeah i mean and i just think it's interesting why we want to push back and not believe it you know so i think we have to ask more questions about that you know mm. when people want to really have that knee jerk response of not not believing this is happening like why wouldn't you why wouldn't you believe it or at least be curious and investigate it a little bit more? You know, I think, I think we don't want to think that, that our medical providers are doing something that would be potentially harmful to us. And, and I, and I think the vast majority of medical providers really care about that. Um, and, you know, I think we have to change the conversation about this, you know, um, um, it, it matters to a patient whether it's one pelvic exam by their surgeon or three pelvic exams because two students did them too, you know, that matters. So, right. um, so yeah, you know, it, it, it's taken so long, but really, as I realized the climate that the film would be completed in <laughs> um, with the current administration and with all of the conversations around me too, it, it made sense. I was like, okay, all those, all those dark nights of the soul where I was banging my head against the wall that this was taking so long and, um, you know, makes sense now. So I think it is the right time for it. And I think we can really make some change. So I really thank you for bringing this to the people because people need to know about it. Oh, thank you. And, and American fuckers listening along, you heard me, Amy, Joe, people need to know about it. So tell people about it, you know, share this episode, dig up one of those articles, you know, look at I know you have like, um, uh, a preview or a trailer or whatnot for the, you know, whatever it is, share that with people. So other people know this is happening. Yeah, we have a brand new trailer, too. We're about to put up it'll, it'll be on the website by the time this this is live. So um, yeah, yeah, awesome. Get to see. Well, thank you. 
Thank yeah, you. Thank, thank you, you so much, much, Amy Jo, for this conversation. And I'll be seeing you in September. Totally excited. Thanks, Sunny. Thanks, Ken. All righty. Well, thank Thanks. you for being on the show. Bye. Bye. Thanks for listening to American Sex. To keep up with Ken and I, we'll first make sure you watch our TV show, Sex with Sunny Megatron, on Showtime. Then visit SunnyMegatron.com. There you can learn more about us, read our blog, peruse our workshop calendar, or hire us. For what? Well, either for private coaching, or to book us to teach at your event or university, or as sex and relationship writers for your publication. Oh, and don't forget, we're on social media, too. I'm the super social one, so you can find me as Sunny Megatron on Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, my YouTube channel, and a bunch of other places. But if you want to get me on Snapchat, you got to look for Sunny underscore Megatron, and you can follow Ken on Twitter at at tag PsyChicken. That's P-S-Y-C-H-I-C-K-E-N. Also, please support us by shopping with the affiliates and sponsors from our breaks. And if you contribute to our Patreon, we're going to love you forever. Well, we're going to love you forever anyway, but just go with it. Lastly, if you like this broadcast, tell people about it. Tweet it, Facebook status it, and rate it on iTunes and other platforms. Thanks, friends. We'll see you next week on American Sex.